Uh, Bill has written a book about the history of AA and uh, the time periods of 1937 to 1939. Is that correct, Bill? That's correct. Yes. And so, uh, you know, we're going to hear about um, people like uh, Hank Pinehurst uh, that is, was for some have, have people in AA have never heard about. And others will have heard about him, and uh, we can be thankful that uh, he was there so AA could ha have a beginning. Um, our friend Mark is out traveling, so we wish him well. He would normally have hosted this, so Bridge and I are co-hosting today. And um, really, without anything more, I'm just going to give you Bill and let him do the talking. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Bridget. Appreciate it. So today, I want to talk about one of my favorite uh, characters in early A history, a guy who most people don't seem to know hardly anything about, Henry G. Parkhurst. I call him the co-founder who drank. Uh, now, I've written a book called Writing the Big Book. It came out in November of uh, 2019. Uh, it basically covers from the counting noses meeting in October of 1937 when they said, hey, we should write a book. And April of 1939, 18 months later, when the book was published. I began researching in September of 2007. After three years of research, I started I started writing, but I continued to research. And I've finished the first draft uh, exactly seven years later uh, in 2017. I polished and edited that for over a year with other AA historians and my beloved lady, Sarah, my wife. And then the book was published on November 5th, 2019. So when the first time it came in and we had got a chance to hold a copy in our hands, my wife turned to me and she said, my God, it's the bigger book. Because that's a, that's a first edition big book there, which is the biggest one that they ever printed was the first ed edition, first printing. And my book is bigger than that. So, <clears throat> and when, when the book first came out, I did, a, did a, just a number of radio interviews, 30, 35 radio interviews. And I was almost always asked, so, so what was the most surprising thing that you learned from your research in the archive? And today we're going to talk about one of the first one was that Bill Wilson wasn't really a reliable a historian. He was a great storyteller. He he uh, did a lot of parables more than anything else. And and the the third thing was that uh, Dr. Bob and the people in Ohio had almost nothing to do with the writing of the first 164 pages. But the second most surprising thing I learned was about this guy Hank Parkers. Parkers was Bill's right hand man in New York City. And you may have never heard of him, but after Bill Wilson, he's the most important person in early. He is the most important person in early AA history, because the fact is, no Hank, no big book. That's how important this guy is. If he wasn't around, we would not have had a book published on April 10th of 1939. I'm sure we would have had a book published at some point, but who knows when or what would have been in it. But this is the guy who made sure that we got a book published and it came out in April of 1939. And he had a tremendous influence on what went into the book. So here he is, our forgotten co-founder. He's all but written out of the story because he drank again. He, nine months after the book comes out, he's drunk. And there was, there was not just the fact that he drank. He, he did not go gently into the night. He and Bill really got into a, a, bunch, of, a bunch of hassles after, after Hank got, left AA and started drinking. And he's been so forgotten that he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. I, I, was, I was absolutely shocked when I first started doing research on this book, and I couldn't find a Wikipedia page on this guy. It's like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, he's, he's massively important. <clears throat> Anyhow, let's, let's run down some basic, some basic things here. He was born on March 13th, 1895. Uh, Wilson was born in November of that same year, so they're, they're very much contemporaries. 
Uh, he claims in his resume that he's high school and college education, but I don't think he did more than a semester of college, certainly not more than a year of college. He gets sober in, se in September of 1935, so he's 40 years old when he gets, gets sober. He's, at that time, he's married to Kathleen. He's got two sons, Henry Giffen Jr. and Robert Stewart. Those guys, those guys are seven years apart. He's living, when he gets sober, he gets, he's living in Teaneck, New Jersey. Now, I'm, I'm like, I, I always like to understand the geography of what's going on here. And there's, there, so he's five miles. He's in New Jersey. He's five miles west of Manhattan. He's across the Hudson River. Later, he, he moves to Montclair, New Jersey in June of 1937, which is 15. He's going farther away from New York. That's 15 miles west of, of the Hudson River. And just for clarity's sake, because I like these pictures in my head, Bill lives in Brooklyn. He's three miles east of Manhattan. He's on the other side of the East River. So for Bill to get to New Jersey, he had to take public transportation into Manhattan and then into New Jersey to get to Hank's, uh, Hank's offices. <clears throat> Wilson called him a super promoter, and he said he was the greatest high-pressure salesman I've ever known. So here, you know, we talk about Bill Wilson being an A-type personality. Hank Parkhurst is a triple-A-type personality. Uh, he said Hank was a terrific power driver and a hard-hitting salesman. And Jimmy Burwell, the New York atheist, who, who was somebody who had worked for Hank Parkhurst in the past, and Hank had actually fired him for drinking at one point, uh, was uh, he called him a high-pressure human dynamo and said he was the kind of guy who was having an idea every minute. So we're going to see many of Hank's sales and promotional ideas throughout this presentation. It's one of the important things that he brought to the table uh, when, when we're going through this flying blind period, getting to the point where the flying blind period ends on April 10th, 1939, the day the book is published, which is, which is the first time really that anybody knew about the 12 steps. They had just been written the previous December, and they were, they were published in April. So Hank's resume, this is a resume I found up at Stepping Stones, uh, the, the home of Bill and Lois, great archives there. He starts off, he's working for an adding machine company, and within three months, this is Hank bragging all the time, uh, he's a, he's among the top 10% of 1,100 salesmen. The guy's a, he's a mover and a shaker. He opens his own sales consulting business, very successful. Then he joins Standard Oil of Indiana. Now, Standard Oil, of course, is the Rockefeller company that had been broken up on the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1912. So there's all these different branches of Standard Oil. <clears throat> and, and when he starts, he's running a service station, then he becomes a salesman, then he becomes the city manager, then he becomes the divisional sales manager, then he becomes the assistant general manager. And under that job title, he built, he claims he built 485 bulk plants in the new territory, and he employed and trained a sales force of more than a thousand men. This guy's, guy's a big deal here. He leaves Standard Oil to form his own oil company, and then he sells that company back to Standard Oil at a profit. He joins Standard Oil of New Jersey this time as a sales manager for Mexico. Don't ask me to explain why New Jersey is in charge of Mexico. I have no idea. <clears throat> and he says in one year, he turns a $985,000 loss into a $400,000 profit. <clears throat> Based on that sales success, he becomes the assistant wholesale sales manager for Standard Oil of New York. And he here, he says he's responsible for 6,600 salesmen and 28,000 dealers. And he said, to, he said to me, this job, this is a really, this is the middle of the depression here, folks. Nobody's making money. People don't have jobs and the ones that do aren't being paid well. He says that it, on that job, he was, uh, it said that he made $20,000 a year. Silas Bent, one of the early AA guys, is something that he wrote about. Bill Wilson, in a letter that he writes in August of 1938, claims that Hank was making $40,000 a year. Doesn't make any difference. $20,000 was just a, just a princely, princely sum of money to be making by anybody in uh, the middle of the Depression. 
September 1935, he finds himself back in Towns Hospital. Supposedly been there multiple, multiple, multiple times. But here he is drunk again back in Towns Hospital. <clears throat> and he wrote a story, his story in the first edition of the big book is called The, the Unbeliever. It's the one that comes right after Dr. Bob's story in that first edition of which there are 16 printings. And, and this is what he has to say. Okay, he says he's trying. He's talking about Bill Wilson. Hank's laying in bed. He's trying to recover. And, and, and here's Bill Wilson coming around preaching at him, right? He says he's trying. He, idealistic as hell. Nice fella, too. What, what, what was it? He said, oh, yes. He came in and told about his terrific drunks, his trips up here. The same thing I'm going through. Yeah, yeah. He's an alcoholic, all right. And then he told me that he knew he was cured. Told me he was peaceful. I'll never know peace again. And, and, and he didn't carry constant fear around with him happy because he felt free but it's screwy he said so himself uh, but he did get my confidence when he started to tell what he had gone through it was so exactly like my case he knows what his his torture is he raised my hopes so high it looked as though he had something i don't know i i, I guess i was so sold that i expected him to spring some kind of pill and i asked him desperately what it was so wilson's doing a classic 12-step call telling this guy in the bed his story and finally the guy says that sounds like something I, I need. How do I, what do I do? What, are, what do I get? And he said, you need to turn to God. And Hank says, I laughed. <clears throat> never. That's final and in caps, never. That's net, no discount. Never, never in my mind is made up. Never am I, I going to be such a cowardly, low-down dog as to acknowledge God. The two-faced gossiping babbits can go around with their sanctimonious mouthings, their miserable worshiping, their Bible quotations, their holier-than-thou attitudes, their nicey-nice Sunday worshiping, Monday robbing actions, but never will they find me acknowledging God made. Let me laugh. I, I like to shriek with insane glee. My mind's made up insane. There it is again. Burr. This floor is cold on my knees. Why are the tears running like a river down my cheeks? God had mercy on my soul. And that's the end of Hank's story in the big book. Hank's belief or lack of belief in God is one of the most confusing things about this guy. <clears throat> uh, people have labeled him to be an agnostic and an atheist, and he certainly qualified as both of those things at different times of his life. And while he was laying in the hospital in, in uh, September of 1935, that was certainly true. But as he grew in sobriety, it's hard to know exactly what Hank's religious beliefs were, and we're going to be exploring that question throughout this presentation. He's really a fascinating, fascinating man. So uh, November 1935, he's two months sober now. He, he forms a corporation called Sharing Incorporated. And there's 300, it's actually a Delaware corporation with 300 shares of stock. Hank's the president. Bill Wilson is the treasurer. And he actually gives Bill 150 shares of stock. I've seen the stock certificate down at the GSO archive. Uh, we have no real idea what this sharing company was. Uh, Lois said it was a uh, in her, in her book, she said it was a, a company formed to raise money for honored dealers, but we don't get to honored dealers for another year here. So I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. I believe the sharing and company thing is something along the lines of the Oxford group sharing mechanism that he's talking about here. And so now, thanks, thanks. Bill's deep in the Oxford group. In another presentation, I say these people are getting sober on Jesus and everybody's getting sober on Jesus at this point. So. <clears throat> Five months sober, February of 1936, Hank sends Sam Shoemaker his plan for changing America. Now, Sam Shoemaker is the leader. He's, he's, he's in the Episcopal Church in, 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 
in New York City. He's the leader of the Oxford Group in America, in the United States of America. And, and Bill's deeply involved with him. And at this point, Hank is deeply involved with him. They're on board with the Oxford Group, these two guys. But he sends Hank, Sam Shoemaker a letter with his, his plan for changing America. He says, says, to, says to Sam, having been a businessman, I know that America, the American people like organization, an army on the march needs coordination and God needs a spark plug to bring the American machine to life. Hank follows this up with a fairly detailed 13-point plan, and he concludes by telling Shoemaker, if there's any idea here that might be the basis of helpful conversation, I am at your command. In short, read between the lines, Sam. If you want to change America, I am the spark plug that you are looking for. I am your guy. Okay, November 1936. Now he's 14 months sober. By this time, there's, there's all kinds of things going on with, with Parkhurst, but we don't really have documentation. We only know where he ends up several months after this in terms of his religious beliefs. But November of 1936, he's 14 months over. He founds this company called Honor Dealers. This is going to be a big player in a number of different ways in the story of getting the big book written. This company is actually called HGP, Henry G. Parkhurst. And, and his first business project is going to be Honored Dealers. Hank is going to own 51% of this outright. Bill organizes the financing. Hank doesn't have any money from these three guys, Meshi, Jones, and Curry, and himself. And they end up owning 49% of the company. And then, and Hank takes office stake in Newark, in Newark, New Jersey, which is 12 miles west of the Hudson River over in New Jersey. Okay. <clears throat> Hank, Hank could write really snarky, snarky letters. He wasn't, it wasn't a great letter, but boy, he could really get in people's face in print and I'm sure in person, but we don't have recordings of that. So he writes, they just set the company up. They just set the company up and he writes to Bill on November 21st, 1936. He said, look, look, hey, Bill, Bill, it's my job to head this thing up here. Uh, a backer, those people who gave you the money, either has confidence in that ability up to a certain amount of money or he does not. The backer will have no voice. And honor dealers. You and those other three guys got nothing to do with this company. I am not sharing the profits of this business on the basis of advice. Don't come around telling me what you think I should be doing. I'm sharing them on the basis of financial backing. Give me money to get the company up and start. We start making money, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you back. So what was this honor dealers thing? Uh, as Hank envisioned it, Honor Dealers was a cooperative buying group of su- service stations. They're going to buy gasoline, oil, tires, and automotive parts. And, th- and he's going to put together people who join Honor Dealers. These independent service stations are going to join uh, Honor Dealers. So they're going to be more and more and more independent service stations. The thing's going to grow. And this is going to effectively bypass the big corporations that so tightly control the industry supply lines. Uh, most especially the Standard Oil Company, which had fired Hank the previous year from his big paying job. December 1936. This is just after the uh, the company's been formed, Honor Dealers. Uh, Bill Wilson gets offered a job to be a professional therapist at Towns Hospital. Charles Towns comes around and, and shows him the books and says, look at all the money we were making before before the, the, the you know, the, the 1929 crash of the market here. And if we get this thing back, well, between the two of us, we can bring people in here. We're going to make some serious cash. And Bill desperately, desperately wanted to take that job. He thought it sounded like a great idea. Uh, Hank Parker's, however, objects. And he says to him, they have a little little meeting. Bill in uh, the 12 and 12 talks about this as being the first kind of group conscience. And uh, and they have a little meeting. And Hank says, well, don't you realize that you can never become a professional? You can never become a professional. Thank you, Hank Parker's. I can't imagine 
what would have happened in the early history of Alcoholics Anonymous if we even had a history of Alcoholics Anonymous if Bill Wilson had become a professional therapist in December of 1936. That would have been his two-year anniversary. He got sober in December of 1934. January 1937, so it's the next month. Honor Dealers is two months old. Hank hires Ruth Hawk. Now, there's a 1946 picture of Ruth Hawk. Ruth Hawk was a really, really pretty, pretty young woman. And, uh, and he hires Ruth Hawk to be the secretary uh, for Honor Dealers. Uh, Ruth is 25 years old. She's soon to be a divorce. She's a single mother after the divorce uh, with a five-year-old son. And romantic complications with Hank are definitely going to set in at some point, probably late in 1938. We'll hear a little bit more about that as we go along. April 1937, the New York group. So these guys are deeply involved in the Oxford, are deeply involved. And when I, you know, I, I, I started out saying that they that that everybody, you know, everybody was getting sober on God, but people in AA immediately hear, oh yes, God as we understand them. Yes, come up with your own conception of God. That's not what was happening. These people were in the Oxford group. The Oxford group are first century Christian people. They're Jesus people. These guys are getting sober on Jesus. But in October, in April of 1937, the New York group completely pulls out of the Oxford group. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. They're Read the book. They're in the book. But they pull out of the Oxford group. And and uh, and this really produces a crisis in terms of both vision and organization. Uh, I mean, who are we? Where are we going? Uh, how are we going to get there? Now, now, although the New York people pull out of the Oxford group in April of 1937, the Akron people don't pull out of the Oxford group until December of 1939 long after the book has been published in the previous April. So we got two different things going on here. You know, we got we got people in New York kind of starting to move away from they're all getting sober on Jesus kind of thing, whereas the people out in Akron are still doing the Oxford group in spades until April, until December of 1939. So anyhow, we got the guys, if we're not going to ride the coattails of the Oxford group anymore, what are we doing here? Who are we? How are we going to get this thing done? Now, I have no proof. No proof, no documentation saying that Hank Parker's formulated and lobbied for Bill's big plan. But Bill had a big plan <clears throat> that he came up with in mid-October of 1937. He presents that plan to the people out in Akron. Bill Wilson, Fitz Mayo, Bill Rudell, and Sterling Parker, a brand new member, all go to Akron for what's eventually a summit meeting. Now, Bill never mentions any of those other New Yorkers in his story when he tells this, this story. This is the... Uh, the famous county noses meeting. They count the noses of how many people he, Bob, and Ann, according to Bill, did this, and they came up with 40 people they had, they had, they had, they had cured. But the fact of the matter was, Bill uh, Lois's diary is very clear. All these other people were out there. Uh, and here's the big plan. We, we got a cure. How are we going to spread the cure? We need, a, we need a string of hospitals all across the country. You know those new those brand new A&P supermarkets that are springing up, all, you know, this chain of uh, grocery stores all across the we need a chain of hospitals, alcoholic certain hospitals that are going to help people get sober and, and to, to, to get meetings going in places and bring patients into those brand new hospitals. We're going to need some paid missionaries and we should, we got to write a book. If we don't write a book now, the whole thing's going to get garbled and screwed up and somebody else is going to, you know, start telling people what we're doing. We need to tell people what we're doing and how we're staying sober. So we got these three proposals. Um, these people, 
in Ohio, Bill's always said it, it passed by the by the slightest of margins and his numbers are just crazy. But the fact of the matter was the people in Ohio said, OK, 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 Bill, you want to do that? Uh, we'll let you do that. Go you. But we're, we're not giving you a penny here. You need to go back to New York. That's where the money is. And you need to raise the money there. If you want all this clearly millions of dollars for a string of hospitals all across the country, paid missionaries and somebody to write a book. Uh, so Wilson goes back to New York. And, and he just can't get anything going. It just can't get. And so three, two months after this meeting out in Ohio, he finally makes a connection with a, several people in the Rockefeller organization. So on this particular night, December 13th, 1937, there's a dinner set up with the Rockefellers. These four uh, Rockefeller guys meet with eight drunks. And where are they meeting? They're in Rockefeller Center in the Midtown New York City, and they're they're sitting in a boardroom that's right outside John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s private office. Big freaking deal here. So I kind of wonder what's going through Hank's mind. I would love to. We got no evidence here of what was going on with Hank Parkhurst, but but this is the company that fired him, and and now he's sitting outside John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s office, the man who's in charge of the whole deal. Rockefeller's father had died the previous March, John D. Rockefeller Sr. So he's the man now. Here he is, John D. Rockefeller Jr. He's the richest man in the world. Literally, the richest man in the world. He and his father had been lavish contributors to the cause of temperance for decades. Prohibition had failed miserably, and, and, and he had turned against the whole prohibition movement in the, in the early 30s. And now this small New York Acton Fellowship was claiming that they discovered a cure for alcoholism, and they were calling it a cure in 1930. 37, 38, 39. Believe me, cure. We got a cure. So they, they meet on December 13th, and then we get to the, the big New Year's Eve party. The Wilsons have a New Year's Eve party. They got 27 guests. Lois has a list she, down in the archive at their home in Brooklyn, 182 Clinton Street. Bill and Hank are certainly got reason to celebrate. I mean, they've just made successful contact with the richest man in the world. A guy who's been giving money to temperance and, 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 and trying to solve this alcohol problem for two generations. February 38, uh, they already have an inkling that Rockefeller soon to announce a negative decision. He only gives them five grand. We'll talk about that in a second. So in February, we don't get that uh, until uh, March of uh, 38, Hank proposes monthly dues for AA. They got to get some money going here. These guys have no money. The guys who are running this deal. And uh, this is a letter that Frank Amos wrote in, uh, in, uh, in October of 1938. He said, last February, Parker's put the proposition of monthly contributions up to a large number of the New York alcoholics who accepted the plan in principle. But several of the wives raised a kick and the plan was abandoned for the time being. Upon being consulted, Dr. Smith advised emphatically that such a plan attempted at present with the Akron crowd would be demoralizing. The people out in Akron were just, the Ohio people were just deaf on money. And all money is going to ruin this thing. Money is going to ruin this thing. You can't be doing that. So uh, Dr. Bob, when, when he, he finds out they were talking about it in New York, probably through Bill Wilson, he says, I'm not, I'm not even bringing that up out here. Not even going to bring that up out here. March 17th, 1938, St. Patrick's Day, usually a day for alcoholic celebration. But uh, Rockefeller famously gives Dr. Bob only $5,000. Wilson always said that that money went to AA, but it didn't. And really, it was all earmarked for Dr. Bob. Uh, 
one of the Rockefeller guys, Frank Amos, had gone out in February, met with Dr. Bob, looked at properties that Dr. Bob showed him for this potential hospital, blah, blah, blah. But Bob was Bob was really in trouble financially and he was, might lose his house. So anyhow, they monthly gave him enough money to cover his mortgage and a couple of other things. Um, but that was all they ever gave. And, and uh, Rockefeller, in his letter saying, I'll give you five grand, he says, in any event, you will not look to me for a further contribution for this object. Now, that's a little bit stilted, but the, the point is clear. I'm giving you five grand. Go away. Don't ever talk to me about this again, ever. April 24th, 1938. Bill goes back to Akron. Okay, he goes back to Akron and brings up the book proposal again. He, so, so what do you think? Should we be doing a book here? They're thinking that if they can't, if they can't get a lot of money from rich people, they weren't having any success, had no success up until April 24th, that, that maybe if they if they wrote and published a book, they would sell the book and they make money off of that. <clears throat> Ackman was not in favor of a book. And they revisited all the negative arguments that they had made the previous October. And those are really, some of those arguments are really good arguments. I mean, you know, one of the things they said was if you put out a book and, and you say that we, we, we can get people sober and we've been getting people sober in New York and Akron, People are going to descend upon us. We got we got no structure in place. Why, how are we going to deal with all these people? How, we we can't do that. You're just gonna you're gonna drive this entire project we've got going so successfully on a word of mouth basis. You're gonna just drive it right off the rails. So so they had some good arguments and they were really worried about that. Bill doesn't call for a vote this time. He had only one recent Burt Taylor, one recently sober New Yorker with him. And uh, Bill was a master politician. He realized that if he called for a vote that time, he would probably lose. So he didn't call for a vote. Hank, however, loves the idea of a book. He loves the idea of a book. And he becomes his biggest advocate. He claims that the profits from the book will finance the group going forward, generate much needed cash for the founders. And he immediately creates a rough business plan for the project and sends it to Bill, quote, just to make sure that we are thinking alike. And here's Hank's plan. You're going to set up the alcoholic fund. Okay. You're going to collect donations for the book project. They're going to repay those donations from the early profits of the book. And some of the remaining profits will stay with the alcoholic fund. And the rest of the profits will go to the marketing company, quote unquote, and or the publishing firm, quote unquote. The marketing company, by the way, is Hank Parker's, and the publishing firm is Bill Wilson. So they're going to get, they're going to be taken part of the profits here so that they can finance themselves. So they do set up the alcoholic fund. And I, I love this fact that, you know, once again, we owe Hank a, a debt of gratitude here. The, the alcoholic fund, three months later, it morphs into the alcoholic foundation, a legal entity, rather than just a checking account set up at, at Chase Bank. Uh, and, and this over the years evolves into our current general service office with a professional staff answering to the board of trustees in the general service conference. General service conference, which kicks off this coming Sunday, three days from now. So Hank convinced Bill that if he just had two chapters, two sample chapters of the book, that would be the very best way to, for them to explain themselves while soliciting these donations from, from rich people. This is going to be our foot in the door deal. You want, to, you want to get an appointment with a really important guy in New York City, you need to apply for that appointment. But this is the thing that's going to get their attention Two chapters. No, I just need two chapters. So on May 20th, 1938, this is an incredibly important date for our fellowship. May 20th, 1938, Bill starts writing the book. <clears throat> the two chapters he's going to write 
as promotional pieces. They really don't have a plan in place here to write the rest of the book. They just need some promotional pieces to get some money. Uh, those were chapter one, there is a solution, and chapter two, Bill's story. Note, note the fact that those are reversed in our book today. But in this original iteration that we started where there is a solution, and that was followed up by a personal testimony of how well the solution described in chapter one worked, Bill Wilson's story. So here's the problem, though. From the very beginning, Hank is not happy. He is not happy with what Bill's right. Most especially, he thought it was far too religious. Way, 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 way too religious. Hank is advocating for a book based on moral psychology. Moral psychology. Uh, this is an incredibly important argument. It's going to go on between Bill and Hank from June of 1938 right up until April of 1938, just days before the book is published. It's this religious versus psychology thing that Wilson talks about in A.A. Comes of Age. Now, when I read that book the first time and I hear psychology in this argument, I think, oh, we're talking about Sigmund Freud psychology or we're talking about by Carl Jung psychology. But that's not what Hank Parker's is talking about. And that's not what they were arguing about in the beginning. They weren't looking to turn it into a, you know, a, a sort of, you know, psychoanalytic approach to solving your alcohol problem. It's not what was going on. Um, but this argument that Bill characterizes religion versus psychology, there is nothing more uh, important in its impact on the final text of the book than this particular argument. So exactly what is this moral psychology that Hank is advocating? Well, moral psychology is Dr. Silkworth's solution to the alcoholic's problem. It's Silkworth's idea of how you get sober. And, and in 1937, he wrote this article in the medical record called Reclamation of the Alcoholic. And it was a four-section article, and the fourth section was boldly titled in capital letters, Moral Psychology. And it starts off by saying, we believe that this decision, the deflation of ego, and the nature of inspiration. The patient knows he has reached a lasting conclusion and experiences a sense of great relief. The guy's hit bottom. These individuals, introverts for the most part, got to, got to clarify, this is a different use of the word introverts. Introverts, I think of somebody who goes over in the corner and, and very, very quietly, you know, is all by himself. That's not what we're talking about here. These individuals, introverts for the most part, this is what he's talking about here, whose interests center entirely on themselves. Huh, there's an alcoholic hallmark. Once they have made their decision, frequently ask how they can help others. So we're going from being centered entirely on yourself to helping others, being a person who helps others. That's that's the benefit and the process and the outcome of moral psychology. And he gives two examples. Uh, this is clearly Hank Parker's following thorough, thorough elimination of medical rehabilitation. He got a detox. He made a satisfactory physical return. He then took up moral psychology. And in two years, time has entirely recovered his lost fortune. And case number four in this particular article is Bill Wilson, Following a course of treatment in which the alcohol and toxic products were eliminated and his craving counteracted, detoxed, then he took up moral psychology. And he's gathered about him a group of over 50 men, all free from their former alcoholism through the application of this method of treatment, detoxing in a hospital, and then practicing moral psychology. To such patients, Dr. Silkwood says, we recommend moral psychology. And in those of our patients who have joined or initiated such group, the change has been spectacular. So the argument begins. Bill was writing his first version of There is a Solution, and Hank's jotting down his ideas about what that chapter should and shouldn't say. There's 11 pages of this. 
in uh, in this in the Stepping Stones archive. <clears throat> this is page one. This is Hank Parkhurst writing uh, on all of the itemized things. And at the very bottom, it says Hank's ideas. That's that's Bill's writing. So he wrote all this stuff down, handed it to Bill Wilson. Bill writes Hank's ideas at the bottom. Uh, so here's just his suggestion for chapter one. Stop doing that. There is a solution thing with all that God stuff in it, Bill. We want a history of the work. Possibly this could be carried out on the first two pages of the book. This history should establish a proof of success of the work and carry hope to everybody that reads that much. The opening of the book should arouse the emotion of hope. That's what he wants to be doing. And then he has this long three-page thing on observations, one of the most interesting things in Hank's ideas because we can't, we don't have time to go through all of them. But here's what he says. One of the easiest and the most talked about things among us is a religious experience. I believe that this is incomprehensible to most people. Simple and, and meaningful to us, but meaningless to most of the people that we're trying to get this over to. In my mind, religious experience, religion, etc., should not be brought in. We are actually irreligious. How's that for one man's viewpoint of what's going on in Alcoholics Anonymous in June of 1938? We are actually irreligious, but we are trying to be helpful. Moral psychology. We have learned to be quiet, to be more truthful, to be more honest, to try to be more unselfish. Moral psychology to make the other fellow's troubles our troubles, moral psychology. And by following four steps, we most of us have a religious experience. The fellowship, the unselfishness, moral psychology appeals to us. I wonder, he says to Bill Wilson, his Lord High Sponsor and friend, I wonder if we are off track. A very good merchandising procedure, Hank's a businessman, he's always coming back to exactly this kind of argument, is to find out why people do not buy our products. And it is good reasoning to find out why. I am fearfully afraid that we are emphasizing religious experience when actually that is something that follows as a result of one, two, three, four. In my mind, the question is not particularly the strength of the religious experience as much as the improvement over what we were. Let's pay attention to the practical results here, Bill. I would ask a man to compare himself as follows after, say, a month. And here's, here's Hank's four questions. He says, one, as compared to two months ago, do you have more of a feeling that you're there's a power greater than you? Is this thing growing in you now that you're acting differently? Two, have you cleaned out more completely with a human being than ever before? Three, have you less bad things behind you than ever before? Number four, have you been more honest with yourself and your fellow men? Have you been more thoughtful of people with whom you are associated? Moral psychology, has your life been cleaner, both by thought and action? Have you looked at others less critically and yourself more critically for the past 30 days? Moral psychology, you will never be perfect. Big Hank Carker's point, you will never be perfect. But the question is, have you been more perfect? Are you making progress, dude, or what? Uh, also, also in these ideas, Parker's is the first person to name our fellowship and our big book in this document. There it is. This is his sketch of the title page, Alcoholics Anonymous, published by Alcoholics Anonymous Incorporated. And he sketched out the title page. And then there's the sales promotion. Now, this is a business guy, right? And then he's always looking at, the, at this, these situations through really rose-colored glasses. But um, he says there's over... One million alcoholics and at least one million non-alcoholics, people who are wives, mothers, children, but every employer with over 100 people, all these people are going to be interested in this book. He says there's 210,000 ministers. They're always dealing with alcoholics. They got problems with them. There's 160 physicians. They're always dealing with alcoholics and looking for a solution. And there's those people with an academic interest. According to Hank, the total would be well over 3 million prospects. So they're talking about this book being sold 
easily in, by the carloads. And they're not talking about Chevy van carloads. They're talking about railroad carloads. Three million prospects. So Hank and Bill are fighting. They're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting. But despite all these arguments they're having in late May and early June of 1938, on June 17th, 1938, they send out the first promotional packages with those two new chapters to a New York banker asking for an appointment. There's a little bit of back and forth going on between Bill and the banker in the letters, because we find out from the second letter that Bill writes to this banker immediately after that, that Hank has created an outline for the big book. And this is this is what it looks like. There's 25 chapters in this outline for the big book. And this uh, document comes out of the Stepping Stones archive. So there's 25 chapters. The first two chapters are There is a Solution and Bill's Story, which are already being written. After that, there's going to be a ton more stories. We're doing the story thing right up front, not in the back of the book. The stories are going to be up front. And then there's going to be chapters 16 through 25. They're going to be expositional chapters, the stories that are the ones that are now in the front of our book. This is a really, really amazingly prophetic document. It's just uh, remarkable on Hank's part. Uh, all but two of Hank's 25 chapters finally appeared in our book. Uh, chapter 23, the chapter on failures, and chapter 25, to the potential alcoholic. I would love to have seen the chapter on failures for that sort of thing. Wilson later claims, I think it's in ACOA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, that he mentions the fact that uh, they didn't have an outline for the book. They didn't have anything. He just kind of made it up as they went along. Wrong. Wrong. There's this document that he talks about. In, in, in the second and third week of, of June 1938, he says, hey, we got an outline for the book. Here it is. He sends it to the banker. He sends it to Dr. Baum. Meanwhile, life goes on between these two friends. I mean, these guys, these guys are arguing, but they're just, they're just, they're just almost joined at the head, right? Uh, and uh, on, I love this. I found this in the archive. I was just flabbergasted. Mon I'm reading Lois's, Lois's diary. Monday. June 27, 1938, her diary says, I got mad at Bill, and he went over to Jersey for lunch. He came close to taking a drink. Bill and Lois, Lois was a, was a fighter. She, and Lois remembers there's the, probably three different times she admits that she was the one who was always kind of getting in Bill's face, and Bill was the kind of guy who didn't want to argue about stuff. But they had always had a big argument on June 27, 1938. And later, she does another compilation. She writes this up. She said, on that particular day, I got mad at Bill and he dashed out to take a drink. It was like, screw you, Lois. Screw you. I'm leaving. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go get drunk. If that's what you think. But instead he goes over to Hank Parker's house and he doesn't drink. Thank you, Hank, for keeping Bill sober that day. I mean, I'm talking about whole AA Alcoholics Anonymous project going off the rails. Here it is in black and white, right here in Lois's diary. I can't imagine what, if anything, would have ever happened to our organization and to our book and to me in my life. If in fact, Bill Wilson had had a drink on June 27, 1938. I would also like to be a fly on the wall to, to hear what kind of advice Hank was giving Bill so he didn't take that first drink that he's got no defense against. And also what kind of marital advice he might've been offering Bill Wilson because a year from now, Hank Parkers is gonna be divorced. So anyhow, but there's no fly on the wall recordings for that, unfortunately. Bill goes back home and things have calmed down. And July 1st of 1938, honor dealers rapidly failing, forces Hank to move to a, an office around the, around the corner on William Street. This is a smaller office where Bill's going to dictate the remaining chapters of the big book to Ruth Hawk starting in September. 
July of 1938, Bill Wilson spends almost the entire month off soliciting testimonials. He's down in Virginia. He's in uh, he's in Baltimore at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He's over at, at uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, he's doing all kinds of stuff for the month of July. Uh, and Hank's mailing out the, those promotional packages, and he's taking interviews. He's, he's going out and having interviews with these guys, doing a follow-up calls with these rich New Yorkers. And they're not, Bill says they didn't raise a penny, not a penny, not a penny. Uh, August 5th, 1938. The, the Alcoholic Fund, which was really just a checking account under Hank, Frank Amos's control, now becomes a legal entity called the Alcoholic Foundation. Willard Richardson, Rockefeller guy, Frank Amos, Rockefeller guy, John Wood, a lawyer that Frank Amos got to do this on a pro bono to set this document up. They, those guys are all trustees. And Bob, Dr. Bob and Bill Rudell. Bill Rudell had gotten sober the previous February. I'm sorry, February of 1937 a year and a half before. These guys are the trustees. Bill Rudell is the chairman of the board. And then Leroy Chipman, another, the third Rockefeller guy, and Albert Scott, the fourth Rockefeller guy, are on the advisory committee with Bill and Hank. <clears throat> but they still get no money. They got no money. These, whatever connections these Rockefeller guys are handing to them, they're just not able to raise any money. <clears throat> they are not getting it done. Uh, Bob's getting a small monthly check from the Rockefeller contribution at $5,000 that he authorized on St. Patrick's Day uh, to cover his mortgage and things like that. But Bill, Hank, and Fitz are just dead broke, and they haven't raised any money. Hank Parker has a new plan. Hank has lots of plans. Um, there's, a, there's this Sunday newspaper magazine called – it's a supplement. It goes in, in newspapers all across the country. It's called This Week Magazine. There's 5 million copies of these things. They're printed in New York City by the Herald Tribune and sent all around the country, and people put this – Sunday supplement in the big Sunday newspaper. Uh, so in early September 1938, one of their members has an in with this particular magazine, This Week magazine, and he's going to write an article about their cure and get it placed in This Week magazine. And in that article, Hank wants that guy to put in, uh, wants to offer several chapters of their book, of the upcoming book, for just one buck. They're going to mention the fact that they got an upcoming book, and they're also going to pitch and say, look, if you want, if you want some of those chapters, we got a couple of these, we got a few of these chapters written. I just, just, why don't you send us a buck and we'll send you those chapters? And he says, you know, what, what, a dollar? I mean, how reasonable? How, I mean, it's just stupid reasonable. It's, it's just a, Hank says, it's just the price of a pint of cheap whiskey. Who wouldn't want to send in a buck? Put it in an envelope and send it to us. But Bill, we got a problem. We got a problem, Bill. We only got two chapters. And people are going to expect something more like five chapters for your dollar. We can't just, we can't just send them those two chapters. We need, we need more chapters. So Bill Wilson starts writing again for the big book on September 15th, 1938. So three months have gone by since he's done any writing at all. June, July, August, September. Three months. He's been trying to raise money. Nothing, nada, nothing. September 15th, he starts writing again. And he continues writing from September 15th up until December 31st, when the first draft of the big book was finished and ready to go to the, the editors. <clears throat> September 26th, 1938, Bill writes this long, it's a seven-page letter, long impassioned letter to the trustees of the Alcoholic Foundation. He says, Hank Fitz and I are dead broken, deep in debt, and something has just got to be done. You guys got to bail. You got to figure out a way to bail us out here. We're in deep, deep, deep yoga. So this is these are this is Hank, Bill Wilson telling you what's going on in Hank Parker's life, telling the trustees what's going on in Hank Parker's life in September of 1938. Hank Parker's situation is this. Two years ago, I raised some money, which set him up in business in Newark, New Jersey. The business resulting supports only its four salesmen, two of these being ex-alcoholics. 
It does not support Hank or me, nor does it carry our office and secretary since the slump of last year. There was another depression bump going down. Hence, Hank has no income and is running into debt at an alarming rate. He has at least $2,000 in the hole right now. A lot of money. A lot of money in 1938. Business sense dictated that we close the Newark office several months ago or that Hank may get a job making a salary connection with an oil company in that area. This company to carry his office expenses as part of that agency. I talked him out of that, feeling that his services and perhaps these very office facilities were going to be badly needed in the alcoholic work, which would obviously expand so much on the publication of a book. We can't give up Hank's office because that's where we're going to be. That's going to be our springboard for dealing with all these, these requests that those guys out in Ohio were so worried about. We are going to get a ton of requests and we need an office space and a secretary. We need those things to be able to manage this once the book comes out. He says, without someone like Hank, I would be left to gather the material to write the book and to look after the publicity and distribution of the volume pretty much alone. There is no one in our crowd who has been sober long enough, has the business capacity and energy, and would be available save Hank. Gotta remember, Hank's the second most sober guy in New York City. Frank Amos appeals to Albert Scott, Albert Scott's the guy who's really got John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s ear more than anybody else. He appeals to Albert Scott in the hopes that he'll be a, get another get another contribution from John D. Rockefeller Jr. Instead, Scott insists that if money is so desperately needed, then members must start paying regular dues. This is when Amos writes back and says they, they, they tried to do that in February, man, and it just did not work. He got voted down all over the place. Hank and Bill abandoned any idea the Rockefeller men are going to help them financially, they commit to finding money elsewhere. The book holds the best promise for funding their ongoing operations. you got to remember sale, Hank's sales predictions. And the This Week proposal drags on for weeks. And we, I mean, there's just, there's like, I don't know, 12 or 15 letters in the, in the GSO archive going back and forth, trying to get this thing off the ground between the editor and the owner and, and Willard Richardson and, and Hank Parkhurst. <clears throat> but in the meantime, Bill's committed to writing the rest of the big book. He's in. October 3rd, 1938, Frank Amos gets Bill and Hank an appointment to pitch the book to Eugene Xman at Harper Brothers. Eugene Xman is the religion editor of Harper Brothers, a very successful and profitable division in those days. Uh, there's a brand new book out on Eugene Xman. It's just wonderful. It's, I recommend it to anybody who's interested in what's going on spiritually and religiously in the 1930s and 40s. It's called God the Best Seller by Stephen Prothrow. Anyhow, Amos is a friend of Eugene Xman. They both went to the same college, and uh, and he sets up this appointment for them to pitch the book to Harper Brothers. And Harper, Xman likes the book, and he offers them $1,500 advance based on a 10% royalty for all the books sold. And Wilson is really, really, really excited. He wants to take this offer, but Bill, but Hank Harper is violently opposed, violently opposed. Hank argues loudly that they must turn this offer down. He tells Bill, among many other arguments against the offer, he says, if this book, quote, proves to be our main textbook, why would we want it, our main means of propagation in the hands of someone else? Shouldn't we control this thing? Can you imagine if if, if, if a publisher in New York City was handling our, our big book since 1939, probably looking for major edits and changes going along all the time? But uh, that did not happen because of Hank Parker's. So. Thank you, Hank, again. The Rockefeller people, they, they think this is a crazy idea, self-publication, and they, they strenuously advise against, but Hank prevails in his arguments against Bill, and he's got a better plan. Another plan. Hank's always got a good plan. 
They're going to form their own company, says the 100 Men Corporation. They're going to sell stock for $25 a share. Now, by the way, Wilson always tells the story. They went out and bought these blank stock certificates, and they wrote works publication across the top. The works publication name doesn't come up until February. This is October of 1938. It's not until February of 39 that works publication. They were calling the company the 100 Men Corporation. And as far as I know, nobody's ever found a handwritten stock certificate for either Works Publishing or for the 100 Men Corporation. But they're going to sell stock and they're going to sell it for $25 a share. And that money is going to support Parker's family while the book is being prepared. Now, Wilson gets an offer from Charles Towns. Charles Towns will give him $300 a month for five months while he's writing the book to keep him and Ruth Hawk going. $200 for Bill, $100 for Ruth Hawk. But Hank doesn't have anything. So Hank's money is going to come from selling $25 shares of the 100 Men Corporation. So if you sell 200 shares for $25 each, bang up, $5,000 comes in. So that's great. That's money for Hank Parkers to live on. Hank creates a prospectus that all but guarantees a huge return on their investment. So here's what he, here's what he predicts in this, this October prospectus. Um, if you sell 15,000 copies of the book, we're going to get 10, you're going to get your 25 bucks back plus a $10 dividend. If we sell 50,000 copies of the book, you get a $75 dividend. 100,000 copies of the book, you're going to get for 25 bucks, you get a $150 dividend. And some people, he says, say we're going to sell easily sell a half a million copies of the book. Do the math. Do the math. <clears throat> You gotta, you gotta note though that both Bill and Hank were granted 200 shares each. You're gonna sell, they have 600 shares of stock. You're gonna sell 200 shares, but both Bill and Hank each get 200 shares for their efforts as author and Bill and business manager. This is, this is so, you know, if they got 200 shares and they sell 50,000 books at $75, they get $15,000. It was just a princely sum of money in 1938. This is a, this is a big oops. This is, this is, this is, this is the only serious misstep I see these two guys making throughout this flying blind period. But it's a big, bad misstep. And it doesn't get corrected until a few months after the book comes out. They both hand their stock. The whole thing falls apart. They send, they hand their stock back in uh, and to the Alcoholic Foundation. And uh, they borrow some money from Rockefeller, which they pay back. They borrow some money from Rockefeller to buy back the $25 shares, which they do. So they corrected this. But it was a bad problem. Uh, but they got no sales. They can't sell the $25 shares. Late October 1938, Bill and Hank drive up uh, the Hudson River to meet with the guy who's in charge of Reader's Digest. And this is this this is the most popular magazine in the country. And they get a commitment that they're going to write an article about the book. And it's going to coincide with the publication when the book comes out the following spring. So finally, a few shares of stock start to sell to people outside the program. But the stock's certainly not selling well because to the people in the program, because the drunks in New York, they don't have much money and they're suspicious of the whole project. Note that no one in Ohio, including Dr. Bob, ever bought a single share of stock. Now, the reason nobody bought a share of stock was they didn't know that there was a stock company. They didn't know there was a stock offering. They didn't know anything about this until March of 1939, the, uh, the month before the big book came out. Dr. Bob knew about it. So I'm kind of surprised Bob didn't buy a share of stock, but nobody in Ohio bought any stock. And as usual, we got a problem selling stock. People can't cough up 25 bucks. He's got a plan. We're going to offer the stock on a time payment plan. I'm going to sell you a share of stock for 25 bucks. Give me $5 a month for five months. Paid up. You got it. And then you can get those great returns when we start selling these things by the carloads. 
And with that commitment that they had just received from Reader's Digest, the stock does, in fact, begin to sell. November 1938, Parkhurst and Ruth Hock go to a writing school at New York University, and they both now feel free to critique Bill's writings. Um, I said before that there's a romantic situation between these two. This is uh, probably going by this time in November of 1938, but I don't have any concrete proof of that. Uh, but they now, both now feel they can critique Bill's writings because they've been at his writing school. And Bill later commented that he, quote, didn't go for Hank's advice very much. I can just imagine. Um, as a writer, there are a lot of people who give me advice that I don't care for their advice very much. And Hank Parker's could be a pushy guy. Around this same time, while desperately trying to sell stock in Hunter Men Corporation, Parker's writes the chapter to employers. And there's no evidence that that story was ever sent out to Akron, Ohio. There's evidence for almost everything else going out there, but not for that particular story. November 4th, 1939, as managing editor, Hank's taken on the job as managing editor. He hires Janet Blair to be one of the book's two text editors. Now, for decades, since since Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age came out, everybody knows about this guy, Tom Usel. He was the editor. Nobody knew about this woman, Janet Blair, until about 15 years ago, a whole cache of letters that were owned by Janet Blair's surviving relative, someone, um, contributed them to the uh, GSO archive. And so Janet Blair was, was she was, she made a lot of big changes and edits to the big book, the text of the big book, unsung, unsung. It's about time this woman got some credit and we're doing it right here. He has already secured Tom Usel's service to be the other editor. So Usel's going to do this macro view. He's going to do this macro review. He's the guy who moves Bill's story from the first story in the back of the book to the front of the book, for instance. That's the kind of thing Tom Usel was doing. Whereas Janet Blair, she's going to work on the chapters themselves. She's going to fine-tune the chapters. She's going to fine-tune the paragraphs. She's going to fine-tune the sentences. That's what she was doing. And we've got some wonderful, wonderful letters back and forth about the changes she's suggesting that were, in fact, taken. November or December 1938, Hank writes another chapter, not just the two employers, the, the Q&A chapter. This is 15 type pages in the GSO archive. And I couldn't believe this when I found this. This is really, really great. This is, this is one man's opinion. This is a snapshot of what he sees going on in Alcoholics Anonymous on the ground in New York City in late 1938. So this Q&A chapter is, is, is uh, 94 questions and answers. And there's 30 very personal answers. Uh, there's, there's 20 questions that are answered from his perspective. There's 16 questions on slips. And there's 16 or so on religion and God. There's 15 questions on the fellowship and five attempts to define an alcoholic. They've been, he and Bill struggle with that sound bite. They're always looking for a sound bite that would define an alcoholic so that that, that person, the alcoholic, reading that would say, oh, yeah, that's me. They, uh, they, never, they never came up with that proper sound bite. So uh, we don't have time to go through all 94, but I just wanted, I, this is just great stuff. How long since you had a drink is the question. The answer is three and a half years. It's been three and a half years since I had a drink. Um, do you ever desire a drink? Of course, seldom a day passes when I do not wish I could drink. Can you believe that? Dr. Bob said he was he was thirsty for a couple of years after, after he stopped drinking. But here's three and a half years, Hank Parker's is a thirsty guy. He says, do all alcoholics who have used this method wish they could drink? And Hank says, no, 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 no. The desire to drink seems to be taken away instantaneously in some cases. Others lose it after a period of months. But I'm a thirsty guy three and a half years later. What is there about liquor or its use that you still desire? I miss the glow of well-being, which comes from two or three drinks, the instant removal of tiredness and worry. How then do you account for not drinking when you admit you miss these things? 
I believe some power outside of me, this is great Hank Parker's higher power stuff. I believe some power outside of me has straightened my thinking in regard to the inevitable results of one drink. Have you ever nearly slipped? Yes, several times. How did you escape? Now, here's a little little snapshot of AA at work in New York City in 1938. The first time I phoned an alcoholic and told him that I was afraid I was going to take a drink, he asked if I could wait until he got to the house. House call. Another time I called and and he suggested reading the Bible and praying. Got me out of that one. Third time, I told one of the bunch I was going to, and he simply said, so what? Go ahead and have a couple on me. Another time I got to work helping others. So there's four examples of Hank Parker's wanting to take a drink and what he did to stay away from that drink. This isn't, uh, isn't this nothing less than old-fashioned revivalism? I mean, revivalism religion, you know, tent revivalism. I'm forced to say, so what? It works. Who cares? I don't care. I don't care. You can put any label you want on it. I'm not drinking. How often do you pray? Great question. Great question for Hank Parker. How many, many times a day? What is your prayer? Thy will be done and mean it. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. What is your vision or what do you understand by God? He says, this is unexplainable. This is unexplainable. Tough question. When I begin to worry about that, I generally realize I'm getting into a field where far greater minds than mine have argued and failed for years. Not going to, not going to go there. I understand God as a great, indefinable, unexplainable power, which will help me if I keep in tune with it. Now, this is a great statement of what Hank Parker's <clears throat> religious beliefs were at this particular time, late 1938. He wants to keep in tune with it. <clears throat> There's a very famous book published in 1897 called In Tune with the Infinite. And this is one of Hank's favorite authors is Thomas L. Masson. And he wrote a book called In Tune with the Finite, 1928. So that's the kind of thing Parker's is trying to get in tune with. And he's trying to get in tune with the finite, what's going on in his life, as opposed to the infinite, the the great out there. This may be the single clearest statement of how Hank Parker understands God, highlighting his differences with Bill Wilson. This is critical, people. Wilson believes in a providential God, an Abrahamic God, one you can pray to and get help from. You can, there's a God you can have a personal relationship with and get help from. Parker's believes in a more remote God, a universal power. Bill says at one point in Alcoholics Anonymous comes, Hank believed in a universal power, one that you can get in tune with. So it's not a question of getting some sort of relief and partnership with God. It's it's get in line with, get in tune with, let it be, let it go. You know, just, um, it's it's just a completely different concept of of religiosity and and the the part of that those religious beliefs would play in the road to sobriety. Wilson firmly believes you can pray and get help from a personal God. Hank's having none of it. Another question, understand that most alcoholics get into sexual messes. Is that true? Yes. Uh, What is your attitude about possible future sexual troubles? This is a great Hank Parker's thing. If you are speaking of unfaithfulness, I feel the same way about that as I do about liquor. I'm not sure what that sentence needs, but that's true of a lot of things Hank Parker stroke. I'm taking no stand on this question about this unfaithfulness. I can only say I hope I will not get mixed up in any such difficulties. I believe he was pretty mixed up in those difficulties as he was writing this. Uh, there's no record of Wilson's response to this Q&A chapter. You know, it's not in the book, but the, he did circulate it 
Bill uh, Hank did to, uh, to around for comments. And Horace Mayer, one of Hank's prospects, one of his sponsees, one of his on pigeons, as we call them on the East Coast, wrote that he thought it was a fine idea and he offered 11 edits and one additional question. Again, those things from Horace Mayer in the uh, GSO archive. November 3rd, 1938, Dr. Bob, I got a letter from Bill on November 3rd, and Bill had told him that I find it pretty hard to get people to voice their real opinions as they are too much afraid of hurting the author's feelings. This is November. This is November 1938. The book's, the book's going to be done in less than two months. And Bill's can't get anybody to give him criticism or critique. So much for the 100 alcoholics writing the book. So much for the blood on the floor arguments that Jimmy Burwell talks about. I would suggest that members weren't very concerned or invested while Bill was writing about the problem of alcoholism. The problems really came up that really, really sparked the conversations with when he wrote chapters five and six after he wrote the 12 steps in December of 1938. So here's this December meeting. Bill's probably got those two chapters or versions of those two chapters in his hand. And this is a guy who was actually in the room. He said after the meatballs and spaghetti and whatever we had, they had dinner, this same tall, lanky guy, Bill Wilson, came out of the dining room with a legal pad and he scrawled on the floor with his back up against the folding doors and he started to read what he had written on this legal pad. And the guy says, maybe I was too fogged up. He'd gotten sober in the middle of November, so it's clear that he probably was a little fogged up. And I didn't get the full significance of this thing. But at any rate, I listened while these folks wrangled. And what are they telling Bill as he's reading from chapters five and six to them at the Brooklyn meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in December of 1938? He's saying, they're saying, oh, why don't you change a comma here? Put a question mark in there. And one said, don't put that in, put this in. And finally, the meeting ended. The real arguments, the real blood on the floor arguments took place in Newark, New Jersey, office of Hank Hunter dealers between Hank Parkers, who wanted a psychological book, moral psychology book, and Fitz Mayo, who wanted an explicitly religious book. This was the second guy Bill Wilson got sober in New York City when he came back from Ohio in 1937. So here's these two guys going at it. This is a very, very uneven argument. Hank Barker says, we saw this, he's the high pressure salesman. He's the in your face kind of guy. And, and Fitz is kind of a milk toast, you know? I mean, I see this argument in, in, uh, in honor dealers' offices uh, from three steps back, Bill Wilson's Bill Wilson's just letting letting Hank just steamroll. He doesn't want to go into an explicitly Christian definition of their solution. <clears throat> and Hank wins this argument big time. No surprise. Bill Wilson would not agree to change most of the things he had written. He hated to change anything he had written. I can identify with this when I write a, a chapter of, a, of something. I hand it to my wife and she starts redlining it all over the place. I'm like having a hard time with that. I'm, I'm, very invested in things I've written. And Bill Wilson was exactly the same way. But he finally did agree to adopt some of Parker's most important suggestions. God got changed to higher power. God got changed to power greater than ourselves. God got the, append the, the addition of as we understand him. Thank you, Hank Parker's, over and over and over and over again. December 31st, 1938, we've got another New Year's Eve party. This one's out at the Parker's house in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, big guys, possible they're even more joyous because they got the book finished. I mean, the last one, they thought they were going to get all this money out of Rockefeller, which never happened, but now they got the book finished. I mean, they are on track, baby. We're going to get this thing done. They're, and I love this. Um, Bill Rudell's wife was interviewed when she was 
pretty old lady, but she talked about this party and she said, she said, and we didn't, we didn't cheer at midnight in those New Year's Eve parties in the early years. What we did was we all held hands and said the Lord's Prayer at midnight. How's that for a little snapshot of early AA? <clears throat> East Coast. January 2nd, 1939, Tom Usel, the editor, he has the manuscript and he writes back to Hank. He says, I'm reading additional chapters. He'd already seen the first two and surveying the job as a whole. I found myself deeply moved at times, full of amazement, almost incredulity. And during most of the reading, I was extremely sympathetic. My feeling at the moment is that you should certainly hold on to the production and distribution of this volume. Don't let Harper do it. If you can, for she ought to go far wide and handsome and net those concerned a neat profit. <clears throat> this last remark was Clearly, music and Parker's ears. Gonna, we're going to make a lot of money on this book. Early January 1939, Kathleen throws Hank Parker's out of the house. Throws him out of the house early January. I, I'm speculating here. I'm making this up. Uh, maybe he got caught with Ruth Hawk in the, in, the, in the pantry room at the New Year's Eve party. I don't know. I don't know. But she throws him out anyhow. And, and he moves in with Bill and Lois for the next 10 weeks. And this is really, really dreadful from a historical point of view because, because there's no communication between these two guys going back and forth. We have stuff before this time. We have stuff after this time. They were always writing letters and memos back and forth. But we got nothing because they're, they're sitting down to breakfast and dinner every day at 182 Clinton Street in Brooklyn because Kathleen threw Hank out. January 18th, 1939, the board of the foundation, the Alcoholic Foundation meets for the first time in four months. They had, Wilson and Parker said, cut these guys out completely because they weren't, they weren't getting it done. They approve everything that's happened in the previous four months, although they objected to it strenuously at the beginning of that four-month period. And the non-alcoholic trustees even buy shares of stock in the 100 Men Corporation. So they, they vote with their feet. They vote with their checkbook. January 19th, the first published notice of AA appears. It's written by Silas Bent, and there is a hope in the Hackettstown Courier Post. And it's a story written about Hank Parker's, although he's not named. So the very, very, very first publication notice in print of Alcoholics Anonymous and its success in getting people sober appeared on January 19th, 1939, and the story's about Hank Parker's. January through February of 1939, we don't really know who did what to the main? I mean, sometimes we specifically know, but in general, we don't know in the first few weeks of 1939. Wilson had certainly been making changes on a regular basis. I mean, they didn't have Xerox machines to just copy these things up. Ruth had to retype these things with carbons. So she had to do that kind of thing. And, and she was always typing up more copies, but he was always making changes. And we've got, we've got different versions of this thing. You can see the changes being made in three different versions, for instance, that we have of There is a Solution. January 1939, usually it's the format of the book. And one of the things he does is he moves Bill Wilson's story to the front of the book, including many, many other things. He says, he says, you can't open this book where there is a solution. You want to, you want to, you want a story that's going to get offered the hope that, that Hank Parker said we needed to open the book with. Usual says we do that by putting Bill's story up front. February 4th, 1939, Janet Blair begins editing the manuscript and she communicates directly with Parkhurst and she makes numerous significant changes to the text. Uh, by the way, I, I've got, a, got presentations up on YouTube about uh, the first five chapters so far of the big book and, and, and you can see how that plays in there in four-part harmony. February 11th, Arguments over the best name for the book have been going on for months. It's come down to either The Way Out or Alcoholics Anonymous. Hank sends Fitz to the Library of Congress. Fitz lives in Maryland, just over the line from Washington, D.C. They send him to the Library of Congress, and there he discovers that there's 25 books called The Way Out and none called Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Now, Hank and Bill Wilson wanted to call the book Alcoholics Anonymous, so they were happy about this. I just always have to say, when Bill Wilson told this story, he said that there was 12 books called The Way Out, and they didn't want to be the 13th book called The Way Out. That would be bad luck. But I've seen the telegram. I've seen the physical, actual telegram that fits sent. And uh, it says there was 25 books called The Way Out, not 12. It's a great story. Bill Wilson was a great storyteller. I don't fault him for that. February 14th, the board meets again finally, and the most notable in this minutes are that 100 Men Corporation is now being called Works Publishing. And that, that goes on until the, goes on through the first, through the 14th printings of, uh, of our book, Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> it's published by Works Publishing. January and early February, Hank edits the stories before Janet Blair is even completely finished. They send a, a freshly typed manuscript out for pre-publication. And uh, on February 20th, the multilith copies arrive and distribution begins. This pre-publication multilith copies are printed and they're given to all the alcoholics and to doctors and to psychiatrists and ministers and priests. And, and they're all supposed to do these reviews and comments and corrections. They want to make sure that they're not making a bad mistake here. And they want to make sure that everybody's on board with this project the way it's been written. So they, they, they give everybody a shot at, at it. And uh, Hank Parkers is the guy who collects all these comments and corrections. And he, he writes them down in one particular copy that's held in the multilith copy held in the Newark office. And that's, that's been a facsimile of that's been printed in the book that started it all. This came out in 2010. If you're at all interested in early AA history, you, you, need, to, you need a copy of this, this particular book. It's, it's available on Amazon. It's just a great, great, great thing to look at. I mean, look at all these changes. This is on the left. We've got the first page of There is a Solution and on, on, on the right of How It Works. Look at all those changes. And there's what's really interesting to me when I look at this is I see the changes that they took, that they made. I'm so familiar with the changes that got made to their, you know, to How It Works, which gets read in so many different meetings. But then there's suggestions that didn't get taken. And I think those are just wickedly fascinating. Like, why did they turn that one down? How come they didn't make that change? That looks like a good change to me. They didn't make them. March 1939. Uh, one editing fact is known with certainty. Hank Parkers diligently edited the stories that came in after mid-February. There are six handwritten manuscripts in the Stepping Stones archive showing his edits. And he was really, really a tough editor, man. In the Myron Williams story called Hindsight, it was 15 pages long, and Hank just X'd out the first seven pages, dropped it completely. He was really, really a, an aggressive. Let's say he was an aggressive. And Bill Wilson says in Alcoholics Anonymous of Age, a bunch of the guys in New York are really upset about that. Hank also made one truly, truly important addition to Bill's story. This is Hank's handwritten addition to Bill's story. Again, this is in the book that started it all. It's right there in pages two or three, whatever, right up in the beginning. <clears throat> I find these particular Hank Park, this particular Hank Parker's edition to be of, of monumental importance to me and to so many other people in Alcoholics Anonymous. These are the four paragraphs that Hank inserted in Bill's story in March of 1939, a month before the book was published. Despite the living example of my friend that remained in me, the vestiges of my old prejudice, the word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. 
I could go for such concepts of creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit and nature, but I resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving his sway might be. I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. Hank Parkhurst is right. They got to know. My friend, that would be Abby, my friend suggested, this got inserted in Bill's Towns Hospital story, my friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God in italics? That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. Again, italics, it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I saw the growth could start from that point upon a foundation of complete willingness. I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Thank you, Hank Parkers, for why don't you choose your own conception of God? But the most important suggestions for changes for the multilith printing came from a New Jersey psychiatrist named Dr. Howard. He told them they had to drop all your, the directive language. Bill, was, Bill you go look at, at, at the text in that the book that started it all. It's all like, you have to do this, and you have to do that, and you, 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 you. It was all like, you should, and you must, and blah, blah, blah. Very directive. He said, you can't tell alcoholics anything. You got to change that into suggestive language. This is what we did, you know? This is what we did. When we did this, it worked very well for us. And we, 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 that kind of thing. Uh, Bill was incensed and he refused to make those changes. He refused to make those changes. Jimmy Burwell, who was one of the most unreliable guys about early A history, but he was there on the ground. And every so often he hits it right. I've got two quotes from Jimmy Burwell about this particular time and place. He said, Bill, go, did Bill go into a tizzy then? He almost blew his top. There was, this was the closest shave we ever had. There was this baby being torn apart by a screwball psychiatrist, which we changed it around in four or five days. We got, we got it done. Another talk, he said, this is where the disaster nearly overtook us for it nearly threw Bill into a terrific mental uproar to have his baby pulled apart by some outside screwball psychiatrist who, in our opinion, knew nothing about alcoholism. So this guy saying, you gotta, you gotta get rid of that directive stuff. People are not going to respond to that. You need to be much more suggestive here. And on March 24th, 1939. The book is published on April 10th, people. April 10th. We're talking like three weeks before the book is done. On March 24th, 1939, Hank sends Bill a memo saying that if he won't make those changes that Dr. Howard wants, he's going to form a committee of six or more guys, and he tells them who they are, and they're going to make those important changes to the text. You gotta, you gotta tone this thing down. You gotta make it suggestive rather than directive. You gotta do that. And if you're not going to do that, I'm going to form a committee. I'm taking the project out of your hands, and we're going to make those changes ourselves. Bill Wilson caved and made those changes. Power play by Hank Parkers, March 24th, 1939, as we're coming down to the wire for the book. Thank you, Hank. March 29, 1939, Bill, Hank, and Ruth drive to the printer in Cornwall, New York, to deliver the manuscript. I was just up there on Monday with uh, Sally from Stepping Stones. We did a presentation for the Cornwall Historical Society. Uh, because that's where the book was published. And we actually got there early and we went and saw the building where the, where the presses used to be. And we went to the hotel that these guys stayed in when they were there. It was great. It was great. Uh, oh, and besides the three, Dorothy Schneider, this is Clarence Schneider's wife. Clarence Schneider is the big gun guy out in, in Cleveland, Ohio. Very, very important guy in early history. Dorothy Schneider's his wife. 
she joins him up there in Cornwall. So the four of them are up in Cornwall. And the printer claims, Hank gives him this print manuscript. He says, dude, this thing's this is illegible. I can't work on this thing. You got to go back and retype the whole thing. But Hank says, no, 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 listen, listen, we're going to stay here while you're typesetting and give us the proofs as they come up and we'll, we'll correct each page as they come off. And the printer finally, you know, he finally caves and he agrees to do that. And according to Dorothy Schneider, I love this. There's a woman on the ground in the place as they're doing final edits for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that's going to be off the presses in less than a week. She says to Bill, interview 1954, she says to Bill, I can still see you, Bill. We were reading parts, different phrases to you, and and you would weigh those phrases. Did this really say what you meant? Would it really help somebody? Would it offend this group or that group or or the other groups? And and after one of those discussions, Hank was sort of pounding at you. Ah, Hank was sort of pounding at you, and a certain phrase was perhaps too strongly put, probably too religiously put. I can still hear you say, Bill, well, well, I don't want the thing to be so insipid that they don't want to get the idea that what they have to do to get sober. March 31st, by now, Bill says, this is from Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age. By now, our money supply was gone. The hotel bill was going to be twice as much as the cash we had. They hadn't planned on staying and doing all these edits. To Ruth and Dorothy and me, this seemed pretty awkward, but Henry, Hank, stated confidently that God would provide. He says, says, Henry had lately adopted, lately adopted the comforting theory that if God wanted something done, we only had to keep running up bills, which eventually he would pay. This was a heartening example of faith, but it did leave the practical question of who would be God's agent in the matter of the money in this particular case. Uh, Hank wasn't wrong, though. Bill solved the problem. He drives down to New York City, takes Hank Douglas down to New York City, gets a $200 Check from Charlie Townsend, cashes it, and goes back and pays the bill. And it's enough to cover the hotel bill and leave them at least a little bit of cash in reserve. April 10, 1939, the big book is published. The day that I really consider to be the birthday of Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> How could you have a birthday of AA if there's no 12 steps, people? This is the first printing of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So the book is published. Uh, so just to recap the importance of this man, Hank Parkhurst, uh, who many of you probably heard, but never, I just got to reemphasize why I say no Hank, no big book. Um, so let's look at the evidence. He convinced Bill to write the first two chapters in May, June of 38. He created an outline for the book. His fundraising schemes forced Bill to start writing again in September of 1938. He wrote to employers. He wrote the proposed Q&A chapter. He insisted that they publish the book themselves. He hired the two editors for the book. He added the stories in the back of the book. He recorded all the incoming suggestions for change in the multilift copy, and he signed them all off as HGP. He added four hugely important new paragraphs to Bill's story, Why Don't You Choose Your Own Conception of God? He constantly argued for what should and shouldn't be in the book with Bill Wilson. He wanted a psychological book, a moral psychology book, rather than a religious book. And after a while, he won big time. We got higher power from Hank Parkhurst, God as we understand it from Hank Parkhurst. And he forced Bill to make the changes suggested by Dr. Howard. So, uh, I mean, no Hank, no big book. That's my evidence for it. The day after the book comes out, Hank goes into high promotional mode. He places an ad in the New York Times. Do you have an alcohol problem? Alcoholics Anonymous, blah, blah, blah. Contact us here. Just write us right there. Day after the book comes out. Um, April 23rd, 1938, there's an AA member who knew the host of a hugely popular radio program, and he gets to do a national 
national broadcast, three-minute radio interview talking about AA. Parkhurst comes up with a plan to send postcards to 20,000 doctors east of the Mississippi, suggesting they listen to the program and then order the book. It's a two-part postcard. Uh, someone recently questioned how did they ever get the addresses and, and address 20,000 postcards in just a couple of days and get them out. I, I don't have any evidence. I don't have any opinion on it at the moment, but it's a good question. Uh, April 26th, whenever Bill Wilson tells his story, they always said that they waited three days after the, after the radio program. They go down to the post office and they all go with empty suitcases because there's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of postcards. And they discovered just 12 return postcards in their PO box, only two of which were actual orders for the big book. <clears throat> Thanks, Hank's, Hank's promotions and his plans are just always coming up short. This is a perfect example of that. April 26th, the bank finally forecloses and sells Bill Wilson's house in Brooklyn. I mean, two weeks after the big book comes out, Bill Wilson's on the street with all their possessions. On the street. He's homeless. Lois's diary entry says, we left 182, 182 Clinton Street in Brooklyn for good, and we went to the Parker's house. Hank had obviously been let back into the house by this point. Starting May 14, 1938, the first regular 4 p.m. Sunday A meeting is held at the Parker's house. Early May. By the way, I know a bunch of guys in New Jersey. You don't think it's New York AA. They said it's New Jersey AA because all these important New Jersey guys were really the guys getting A sober. They have a point. Uh, early May of 1939, the sheriff appears at honor dealers with an eviction notice for non-payment of rent. Ever resourceful, Hank manages a negotiated deal. He and Ruth moved down to a much smaller office in the same building. It was, as Bill claimed, a tiny room barely big enough to contain Henry's large desk, his overstuffed chairs, a couple of file cabinets, and Ruth and her typewriter. For callers, there was standing room only. Things begin to unravel for Hank with a vengeance at this point. June 4th, 1939, Hank and Kathleen are on the outs again. Now, all these things that come up in quotes going forward for a number of slides here from Lois's diary. So this is once once she didn't write a lot in 36, 37, 38. But once she got out of it, they got thrown out of the house in in uh, in April of 1939. All of a sudden she has she's not she's not cleaning up and feeding five drunks that live in live in the Brooklyn house. And she's got time to write in her diary. So her diary entries for 1939 starting in April just explode. Some really, really great long diary entries with great, great historical information. June 4th. Hank and Kathleen are on the outs again. <clears throat> June 14th, we stayed all night with Hank trying to calm him down. But he was determined he was going to leave Kathleen and get a divorce. He's planning on marrying Ruth Ock. June 19th, Kathleen moves out. She's moving out of the house. She's got a friend who's got a house that's going to be empty for a month and a half. So she moves out. And Lois helps her move out. July 1st, <clears throat> Hank gets a job as a salesman for the Tax Research Bureau Institute. Big step down from that $20,000 or $40,000 job he had with with uh, Rockefeller's company. August 15th, Hank didn't go to the meeting, according to Lois's diary. <laughs> we all know what this means, right? Hank didn't go to a meeting on August 15th. And on August 16th, yeah, Henry was drinking and drove Bill home from the station and then went back to town for more. I'm surprised Bill let him drive. He probably insisted and wouldn't get Bill home any other way. August 19th, Henry is trying, Henry is trying to shake out of it. August 31st, she goes and helps move Kathleen back into the house because her friend's coming back the next day to retake uh, that empty house back. September 5th, 1939, Lois says, Kathleen phoned to say that she thought Hank was drunk. And on the 6th, Hank, drunk, phoned Bill in the afternoon after a lot of phoning. Bill found him and brought him back to McDougal's and put him to bed. September 7th, Hank's still pretty drunk. The 8th, Hank's sober. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're finally trying to 
stop some drinking here. September 9th, Henry Hank's temporary job with the tax bureau comes to an end. Can you imagine they let him go, that temporary job? Of course, the guy had been drinking bad for weeks, if not months at this point. September 10th, Hank arrives sober, but Jittery's lost his job, and he's coming back. September 13th, he gets a straight commission job selling for Jersey Oil Heating Company. Now, these are guys that sell oil to you in your house, you know? This is a long way from standard oil, let me tell you. <clears throat> September 30th, Kathleen files for divorce. So where's Ruth Hawk in all of this? I mean, she admits freely in an interview, Hank wanted me to marry him, she said, and she certainly Kelly admits that I had one time seriously considered marrying him. But once he started drinking again, she said marriage became an impossible thing for us. And early October of 1939, Works Publishing Stockholder, they have a stockholders meeting, right? So this is like, you know, the, the book's been out since April. We're going to sell these things by the carloads. What's going on? The stockholders want to know. These guys have bought $25 shares, according to Bill Wilson. Hank couldn't make an accounting because a great many of the records had mysteriously disappeared. He said he thought standard oil detectives were after him and had broken into our office and taken them out. So to reconstruct what payments had been paid in, in and paid out was a very difficult job. Talk about, talk about alcoholic fantasies here. <clears throat> Mysteriously disappeared. Standard oil detectives. The strain increased it terrifically as the boys put him badly on the spot. He began to be wildly excited. Silkworth had warned me against him, calling him a paranoid. I didn't know what that meant at the time. Silky warned that he might even be murderous. Wow. October 21st, 1939, Hank writes to Bill. He was started writing these really snarky letters to Bill Wilson. So, so, uh, will there be a grand poobah of AA, Bill? Is that going to be you, Bill? Would an office tend to take away the endearing amateurism of this work and tend to professionalize it? Wilson's moving to New York City. He's setting up an office. Gee, Bill, this is all used to be so wonderful that I wonder if that old touch isn't being lost. Are you still the simple country boy that used to be so enthused and happy and sending someone out and seeing someone get out of the hole? <clears throat> Hank blamed Bill for most Bruce refused to marry him, most of, especially when Bill moved the A office to New York City on March 16th of 1940 and took Ruth Hockwell. April 22nd, 1940, Bill and Hank relinquished their stock in works publishing. Hank, still drinking, goes to Ohio telling malicious stories about Bill and accusing him of making tons of money from Alcoholics Anonymous. And Clarence Schneider, the guy in Cleveland, this big guru in Cleveland, he becomes Hank's partner in spreading these stories. May 10th, 1940, the Parker's divorce is finalized. And according to Lois's diary, she says, we were fed up with Hank drunk. This is on May 10th, 1940. So we sent him a wire. Bill phoned Kathleen, but Wally Van Arks, who would be Kathleen's next husband, but Wally Van Arks answered, and he advised her to delay her, and we advised her to delay her divorce until Hank is sober, or he is wild enough to hurt her. Wally was furious and said he would have me subpoenaed. She was going to, she was going to testify for Kathleen and hung up. So under the circumstances, Bill thought it would, that we ought to get out of the state, and he did not want me to get mixed up in it. So, Oh, this thing has turned into such a dining break that Bill Wilson goes across state lines so they can't subpoena his wife and take him to court. Uh, May 11th, day after the divorce, Hank's been put in the hospital. Again, Lois's diary. The next day, she says, Wilson's go to the hospital, but according to Lois, we found he'd left. So we went to his apartment, and wonder of wonders, Carolyn Wright from Cleveland was there nursing him. Hank had wired her to come. She was tremendously flustered and 
seemed all a Twitter about Hank. Will wonders never cease? Oh, Carolyn Wright just came down from Cleveland to take care of Hank in New Jersey. Now, Carolyn Wright is Dorothy Schneider's sister. So there's there's there's, there's these four, these three Wright sisters, Carolyn, Dorothy, and, and uh, Virginia. And Caroline Wright is going to become Hank's second wife, which makes her brother-in-law to Clarence. <clears throat> I mean, makes Clarence his brother-in-law. Mid-1940s, Hank partners with Clarence Schneider, Henry Giffen find porcelain. So they're making porcelain things and and uh, Hank makes them and Clarence sells them and they, they fight frequently. Hank remained bitter and resentful over A and especially Bill Wilson. Uh, this is a, this was an interview that somebody did with Clarence uh, later in life in the 60s or 70s. I can't remember. But he said, said about Hank, he never would have anything to do with AA after, after that. I, I remember a couple of years or so later, I was traveling and we were in New Haven, Connecticut one time. And we went to, we went to a meeting and he went with us just for the fun of it to see what was going on. Uh, he hadn't been an alien all that time. So we went up to this club in Orange Street in, in New Haven, and there's a there's a picture of Bill up there hanging on the wall. This is on the second floor, hanging on the wall. And Hank goes over, and he's looking, and he's acting real stupid, like a drunk just coming in, doesn't know what he's doing. And he didn't tell people who he was or anything. And he just acted like he's some new guy coming in. And he says uh, says to some guy, who, who's that guy up there on the wall? And, and some guy's breathless. He says, oh, that's Bill Wilson. Like he was a god, you know? So Hank says to him, what about him? Who is he? So the guy starts explaining what a wonderful guy this Bill Wilson is. And Hank says, well, how does he come in here? Does he does he walk up those stairs to the second floor? Or does he just float up and come in through the window? <laughs> Hank is off and on sober, supposedly more off and on for the rest of his life. He marries a total of four times. There's Kathleen, Carolyn Wright. A Houston heiress, who reportedly was the love of his life and died in 1950, leaving him an inheritance, which he later used to remarry, Kathleen, and they buy a chicken farm in Pennington, New Jersey. January 18, 1954, Henry Parkhurst, Henry Giffen Parkhurst dies. He's 58 years old. Lois said it was from drinking. Others said it was from pills. Some thought it was both. His obituary reportedly says he died after a long illness, so we're never really going to know. Henry G. Parkhurst is the most forgotten man in AA history. Had he stayed sober, he would surely be hailed today as one of the movement's co-founders. Instead, his name and place in the official story has been all but eliminated. Hank's slip was catastrophic, and the price he paid, both personally and historically, was severe in the extreme. Hank Parkhurst was central, essential, and invaluable to the creation of both the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And as such, he can rightfully claim substantial credit for saving the lives of millions of drunks worldwide. Without him, it's possible there would never have been a worldwide movement for us to be talking here about today. The downfall of this man who was so responsible for the creation of the big book and who forced such significant and far-reaching changes to some of the Bill Wilson's more dogmatic positions was a tragedy of the first order and a living testimony to the power of active alcoholism. Hank's continued drinking was an event that colored so much of what came before. The stories changed and got told different and after. Rest in peace, Hank Parkhurst. Rarely have so many owed so much to such a forgotten man. But not so forgotten as he has been in the past. Besides my book, friends have been crafting a Hank Parkhurst website. HankParkers.com. 
which already contains a tremendous amount of information on this fascinating and important man. And this is what it looks like. HankParkers.com. Uh, the site offers pull-down menus leading to more information on Hank's life, on his legacy, on letters, his writings, some videos. We got other writings. We got photos. And we got a submit button if you want to submit some information. I have, for instance, offered my own encapsulations on Hank's sober life. Uh, so far, I've only completed the write-ups on 1935, 36, and 37. 38 and 39 are going to be forthcoming as time permits. Uh, there's a submit button there on the All, Thing, All Things Hank website. And the developers are encouraging serious scholars with properly documented evidence of any and all aspects of Hank Parker's life to submit their contribution for consideration. Henry Giffen Parker's deserves and his contribution to Alcoholics Anonymous demands all the respect and attention that we can generate for him. And I am grateful to the website developers for making this more and more possible. And if you've enjoyed this presentation, friends have helped me set up a Bill Shaberg YouTube channel, which currently offers 11 of my presentations on early A history. Thank you. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, it was certainly a heck of a presentation. Uh, it may seem like there's just a few of us here. There's a few more popped in, but the nice thing about this, it's being recorded. So people will get to listen to it at their leisure. And I know a lot of it does on the podcast on tujnua.eu. Uh, so you'll be up there. It's so important uh, for history to get it right. So I'll call you a radical. Bill, your, your writing is radical. Now, geez, some people will misinterpret that. What well, does radical mean? To me, it's to the root. And uh, since this is uh, uh, AA history, you know, yes, I'm, I'm grateful that you put this together. Uh, you know, some people on here may not know, and those who will be listening may not know, uh, it was 10 years of research that you did before you actually published the book in 2017. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And you're right. It's, you know, the first chapter of the book is called uh, Challenging the Creation. That's just because I found so much contradictory evidence in, in, in contemporary documents in the archives. I was amazed that nobody had ever... If they'd looked at them, they didn't write about them, you know, so I wrote about it. And that's what I did. We just, I said, we just did this presentation at uh, Cornwell, Cornwell, and there was like 30 AA people in the crowd because Sally had told people in the area that we could do that. And I, I said, you know, I said, listen, first chapter of this book is called Challenging the Creation Myths. So if you're an AA fundamentalist, you don't want to read this book. <laughs> Interesting. Um, you know, and I think, too, uh, I believe that, uh, I don't know, maybe, I'm, maybe I uh, deify uh, Bill Wilson a bit uh, myself. Uh, I like that part. That, what does he float through the window? That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah. That good. But I, I wonder, though, in his, as he uh, evolved through his sobriety in his later years, I wonder if he would come to appreciate that uh, Hank Parkhurst was included in in this uh in the history of aa in the way that it has been i i wonder i'm i'm sure at this point the problem the problem with giving hank any kind of prominence early on was that the guy drank again it wasn't a good advertisement for the program it just wasn't a good advertisement i understand why why he got dropped out i, I mean you know bill does mention it alcohol comes of age but those are all drive-by mentions they're really drive-by things you know you got to read that book carefully to know that there's a guy named hank parkhurst well, and, and really, and thank you for doing what you have done. I, I know this is uh, your forte, but uh, really helping uh, this to carry on into the future when people get to read it. 
uh, I think is really important. I, I also think bringing up the name Janet Blair, I've never heard that before. <laughs> Obviously very important. And also Dorothy Schneider. I have heard about that coming from Cleveland quite a bit. I'll have more questions later, but I, I want to turn it over to our co-host Bridget and let her uh, ask any questions that she may have. And then we'll open up to everybody else by raise a hand. No Thank you so much, Bill, for your presentation. Um, I've heard you speak a couple other times and it's just always fa endlessly fascinating. Um, and um, I just really think it was such a neat combination of Bill Wilson, this sort of, um, I don't know, he was sort of a visionary, but Hank Parkhurst really, I, he really drove home the fact that he had a lot of the ideas and the enthusiasm that was needed. Um, so yeah, I would, I would very much uh, like to open it up for if anyone has any questions, I'm gonna open the chat back up and um, just, we're gonna do it by raised hands. So please, if anyone has questions, feel free to um, raise your hands and I've opened the chat up. Um, but yeah, so, great presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Bridget. And also uh, in talking with Bill beforehand, he asked that if we could focus on the time period of 1936, 1939, and the writing of the big book, because uh, that's what his uh, research is really. And he said, if it questions later, he would say it'd be just as myth for him too. So our first question is Keith. Go ahead. Follow me and meet you here. There you go. Hey, Mike. Thank you. Thanks so much, Bill. Fantastic. Um, I really admire your your fast delivery. You got through a lot there. It's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, uh, this is a fairly late question, really. Just I was listening to you talking to uh, Josie. And you talked about retaining this. I don't know if you were joking or what you're talking about retaining the film rights in case there's a possibility of somebody making a you know a proper film about the early days and Bill W and so on. So it's just a light question. Do you have a hope that uh, some of this will get to the big screen? Yeah, I, I would love this to get. To, I mean, I think we got a Netflix series here. You know, from I really think we got a Netflix series that. To cover just exactly those things. Now I put together some sort of, you know, you're supposed to put together a what do they call it? I can't think of what they call it. I'm an old guy. I can't remember words and names. But anyhow, uh, I did put together like a 15-page document, kind of pitching the idea. But but what what they're looking for is a script. And of course, the script writers are going on in America. They're all they're all going on strike in next week, I think. So anyhow, um, yeah, I, I I've talked to a couple of people about this, but but nothing's ever come of it. It's interesting to me that Alcoholics Anonymous uh, is kind of painted with a, a tar brush, you know? I mean, for instance, my publisher thought, he guaranteed me we were going to get this book reviewed in the New York Times. Right. Never, never happened. Never happened. It's just, they're just, people seem to feel there's something unsavory about Alcoholics Anonymous, so they want to keep their distance from it on that kind of a level. Ernie Kurtz told, you know, Kevin Hanlon and Dan Carasino did the, the Bill W. documentary that came out in 2012. And, and they interviewed Ernie. Ernie was, was a great contributor to their project. But Ernie told them early on, once, once, you, once you identify yourself in your life work with Alcoholics Anonymous, they put you in a box and nobody wants to talk to you again. And Ernie that's, not even somebody that's sober, uh, just referring back to what you said about Hank. Even worse, you know. Yeah. I drunk. Yeah. How so, uh, 
I mean, one of, one of my one of my friends said to me, uh, I saw this proposal for a Netflix kind of series, and he said, you know, well, there's a lot of drunks who would want to watch that. And I was like, whoa, 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 this is a this is a human story here. I said, did you watch did you watch that uh, the Queen's Gambit that 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 yeah. series? I'm, you know, he said, oh yeah, my wife and I love that. We just burned through that. I said, do you play chess? He said, no, I don't play chess. I said, well. Then why? That's a, that's a human story. That's that's why you watched it. That's why you enjoyed it. Why wouldn't a story about the writing of the book, a human story, be a, be something that would appeal to to everybody? You know, so struggle, they, struggle. the story of the struggle. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, thanks, Keith. Uh, Jenny, uh, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, that was fabulous, Bill. I've heard you a bunch of times too, and love listening and. I, ha I hadn't really heard, because you do talk fast and this so much, that, that you, um, and I think it's so important and brilliant that um, Hank zeroed in on, you know, the reasons not to put the, push the religious stuff first. Because, I mean, if I wanted to convince my friends that, like, um, Russia's not the enemy and we don't want to go bomb them, you know, I'm going to try to find things that are, commonality so if you just put religion and people like hate church or whatever or if you just say whatever it is so 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 that's such a touchy thing and that's you know get them in and people i mean the whole nature of finding god or not finding god is a personal thing the other thing is i think to some degree when you're saying that people that that aa is has this like tarnished people don't want to go near it i think it's a sensitivity because like it's like let's say okay i go to all these meetings now in ireland and i don't know anything i know about the troubles i know nothing about it so i don't want to say anything that's going to step on somebody's toes and i think people are that way about aa they just think it's like my, my sister's a therapist she'll send people to aa but she knows nothing about it i tell her why don't you come to a meeting because i'm an al-anon and she says oh i don't have to you know people just kind of think it's like i don't know they they don't want to like offend anybody and they think it's like they're not part of it. So that's all I have to say. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. And, and you know, this, this, the dialing, I mean, I, 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 that was an hour and a half, you know, and I got, I got a ton of stuff I didn't get to, you know, one of the, one of the things is in there is a solution is where, where the story of, uh, of Roland Hazard and Carl Jung are, you know, and, and, and in our book, it says, you know, you need a, you need to get yourself a vital spiritual experience. That's what it says in our book. But in the first type version of that of that chapter, it says he has he has Carl Jung saying what you need to do is get yourself a vital religious experience. Really, a vital religious experience. I mean, I would have been out the door before you know. Give me a break. So uh, Parker's Parker's did all of that stuff. You know, he was the guy pushing for those changes. They, there was, a, and again, if the YouTube thing on There Is a Solution goes into that in depth and talks about those changes that were made and credits Parker's for specific changes that just didn't have time to get mentioned here trying to tell the whole story. And since this is being uh, taped, I'm going to uh, speak this out. Uh, you're, uh, you have a, a webpage, www.writethebigbook.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, the writing of the big book, the creation of AA. And then also uh, Bridget put in here, um, the uh, it's hankparkhurst.com. That's another one that you spoke about. And then also uh, your m.youtube.com at 
Bill B I L S S C H A B E R G 8911. So if you're listening to this, you can check that's his uh, YouTube out. So we want to put that out there too. And, and, you know, I, I also want to say that, you know, since this is Tujnua, uh, who, who represents all kinds of uh, ideas and, and uh, supports 12 step fellowships and uh, speakers, this isn't an AA meeting today. This is a, for presenting a speaker, an author who wrote a book, a historian, and uh, very grateful to uh, you doing this bill. Um, and then here we have a, a, a question from Tracy. So we'll go to that. Whoops, sorry. Hey there, uh, uh, Mike and Bridget. Thank you for your service. Uh, I love, <clears throat> by the way, Mike, I love how you say Tusnua. 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 Tusnua here. Uh, I love it, man. You're an awesome guy. Hey, uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Schauberg, for your, all your work on this. Wow, what a great presentation. I know you've done a few of these, and um, I don't know which one I, I had dropped in on before, but I sat through the entire presentation this time. And man, was that really worth the, the wait, you know, to sit through the whole thing and be able to sit through and listen to all of the history and uh, the dates and that, you know. And uh, I love I love being able to tell people, uh, 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 no, that was 1938 because Hank Parkhurst said this and this, you know, and, uh, you know, because they have this this, uh, you know, rock star status, uh, you know, the, the, the founders of, of the, the fellowship. And they were they were humans, just like the rest of us, you know, and uh, they had their problems and their, their trials and tribulations and they lost their homes and, you know, went bankrupt, all of that stuff, you know, dealing with bills and womanizing the whole deal. They, they were just humans, you know, and it's amazing that this thing got completed and, and put out into the world at all, you know, and. Uh, and uh, I, lo I I I really appreciate uh, all the hard work, like I said, that went into you to putting all this together. And man, I, I just think of stuff I have to do at work when I have to do research on projects for stuff. And it drives me insane. And I, I, you must be a special kind of human being to, to go through all the old documents and read them and all. And, you know, but wow, that's amazing. So I just wanted to, again, just thank you most than anything uh, for all your hard work and writing the book. So thanks. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you. Anyone else? Bill, I, I would ask, uh, too, um, you know, uh, in that time period, I've always heard that um, Alcoholics Anonymous, the actual name Alcoholics Anonymous, actually did start in Cleveland, not Akron, Ohio, because in those days they were still calling it the Oxford Group, and that the people came down from Cleveland to Akron, and then there was the hierarchy, the separation that, oh, that, those are Protestants down there. And those are Catholics up in Cleveland and the hierarchy of the Catholic uh, church or whatever said, hey, you can't be going down there. So they started meeting up there and calling it up. Is that true? Or did you find anything on that? Or is that just another myth? Or No, it's all in the book. It's oh, there the, you go. <laughs> in it's in the chapter called Aftermath. And uh, but but the the you know, the name Alcoholics Anonymous as I showed you, we, we go, it goes back to June of 1938. And, uh, you know, Clarence didn't get sober until February, 1938. So he didn't invent it in those, those first four or five months. You know, that's not, that, that's not what Clarence always claimed 
was that that uh, the, the meeting that he had in Cleveland one month after the big book came out, May 14th, I think it was, the meeting he had in Cleveland was the first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in the world. That's what he always claimed. And therefore, he wanted to be known as a, as a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was really militant about that all throughout his entire life. But you know, Wilson always said, hey, you know, I mean, they were doing Oxford. I know what they were doing in, in Ohio wasn't really what we would call an AA meeting. It was an Oxford group meeting. But we had left the Oxford group in April of 37. So in New York, we were doing that whole thing. I, I've got a presentation. Uh, I think it's called Bill Wilson, Bill's Vision and the Ever-Changing Plan. I know it's up on YouTube. And I, I got I, when I was preparing that thing, I got to the end and I actually had to agree with Clarence to a degree because what he said was, look, we're going to take this book and we're just going to do this book. We're not going to read the New Testament. We're not going to do any of that Christian stuff. We're just going to take this book. And we're going to do that. Of course, he did take the four absolutes and he stole a number of things that were completely Oxford group things. But his point was, there was the first, you know, Bill said we were always having AA meetings, but they didn't have 12 steps when they have an AA meetings in 1937. They didn't have 12 steps in 1938. The steps weren't written put down in black and white on paper until early December of 1938. And they didn't go public until, until the monthlet came out on February 20th of 1939. And that was to a limited audience. They didn't come out publicly until April 10th. So how could you have something that's a real, a real Alcoholics Anonymous meeting without having the 12 steps? So Clarence, Clarence has, he's got an argument. Bill didn't, didn't buy that argument. I've read the letters when he, when he wrote AA Comes of Age, he sent the manuscript out to a whole 200 or some odd people asking for comments back. And Clarence wrote this long letter, you know, you're not giving me enough credit. Blah, 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 blah. And Bill was like, I'm sorry, Clarence, we were having meetings in New York, you know, before you had that meeting in Cleveland and get over it, you know, but. Yeah, yeah. You know, in a, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, people today struggle with uh, the big book and the wording and the way that it's written. However, you know, based on what you're speaking about today, and, and certainly uh, Hank Parkhurst, had it not been for the big book being published, AA may not still be here for, and all of the off branches of all the other 12-step fellowships for people suffering from afflictions that have been able to recover from it. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think that's 100% accurate. Absolutely. I mean, the book is, you know, even today, there's a lot of problems with the book. The last presentation I did, it just went up on YouTube, is called uh, More Has Been Revealed. And I talk about the problems with the big book at the end of that presentation. And there's a bunch of problems with the book. But still, you come into AA, most AA meetings, man, they, they say, you know, come, don't drink, come back tomorrow. Here's a book you can read, you know, and you really need to look for a sponsor. So it's, it, we always get pointed to the book in the early days, which which is good news, bad news thing on some levels. You know, a lot of people just go, I read the book. I went to High Watch <clears throat> up in Kent, Connecticut, when I left detox in 1981. And, uh, and I read, you know, they gave me the big book. And I read it and I thought, man, the guy who wrote this thing, I really so clearly remember thinking this, the guy who wrote this thing was just an egotistical blowhard. I mean, that was my reaction the first time I read the big book. And, uh, and I was... I'm a non-believer. I've been a non-believer since I was 21 years old. So and I'm very happy with that particular thing. So I had trouble with all the, all the other God stuff in it. You know, I remember calling my, 
my my Lord High Sponsor King Dykeman from uh, from High Watch and saying I, I'm 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 screwed here on this uh, this right on the second step I can't even go there I can't even go there and he said look second step's an AA step that's what it is the higher power is AA that's just stop right there work with that we'll talk about it when you get home from from High Watch you know that's what we do yeah that's a good a good good suggestion in uh, uh, would you say then that the uh, as Hank Parkhurst, as you showed in, in your presentation today, uh, he, while he did have some belief, but it was power. So, so very much the group could be, uh, higher power, as you said, AA, AA itself could be higher power. Why do you think that he said what he did? Was he appeasing part of the, uh, early? No, I, 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 no, I think, I think he was just, he had an ongoing changing relationship with the whole idea about deity and kind of deity. Um, I think he, he stayed pretty firmly in Parker and uh, Wilson's camp and the fact that God was an important part, but he didn't think it was the motive force. It was someplace you got to, not, not the jumping off place. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm good with that. You know, I, if, if you're still preaching the same gospel you preached 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, in my case, 40 years ago, then there's something wrong with you. It's just we, you know, I'm I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. He not busy being born is busy dying. And if I'm not if I'm not changing what I say when I get on my I get on my knees and do affirmations every morning. I get on my knees every single night. But if I'm not changing what I say when I get on my knees, if you're still sitting in the third step for 30 years later when you get on your knees, I suspect it's rote, and it doesn't mean a damn thing to you, you know. So I I change my on my knees out loud thing every morning all the time. You know, I want to open it up. Is there anyone else have any questions for uh, Bill while he's here? This is a great opportunity of a small group here, and this is being recorded, so it might be a question you might have. Somebody else may have if you want to ask something. Hey, it's it's Bridget here again. Um, I just wanted to interject that we did say we get um, Bill out of here by one, so we have time for like one more question, maybe. Right. But um, I did want to like just thank you again, Bill, and. I really, I really enjoyed the part where you talked about Hank Parkhurst's kind of take on God, higher power stuff. I wrote down, keep in tune with it. That's really cool. Like, that's kind of where I'm at, you know, not with any kind of God thing, but like in tune with my intuition, I guess, is the closest thing I can come up with. But that his, um, prayer, his prayer was, thy will be done. That's just like, when you're, you're in, you know, whatever comes down the pike, I got to, I got to accept it because that, that's, that's what it is. You know, it's just. Just let it, it's not just about, you know, let it go. It's about let it be. It's got nothing to do with me. You know, it's out there all by itself. I heard a great image today, this morning. I, I do a nine o'clock uh, meditation meeting here. And the speaker talked about remembering, he's talking about the third step. He said, remembering when he was, he was a little kid and he was in one of those cars in, a, in, a, in an amusement park where it's on a track, you know, it's going where it's going to go. And he said, I was sitting at the steering wheel. My brother was sitting next to me at his steering wheel. It was two steering wheels in the car. He said, I was holding on like this, thinking I was going to drive the damn thing, but it was on a track and it was just going. And he said, my brother, he was having a great time. And I was just terrified, you know, I was doing the thing. And I keep thinking I'm driving the bus, you know, but it's on a track, you know, it's on a track. And it's just like, thy will be done. You know, that's the deal. Just, you can, you can, Go for all that thy will stuff. But, I mean, he wants to be in tune. You got to be in tune. You're not in tune. You're out of tune. You're out of step. 
you're in pain because you're not in tune. You're not in, not in step. So anyhow, thanks. Well, thanks, Bill. Okay. We have uh, we have two hands up, Bill. Do you have time to take these last two questions? Two quickies. I got to get some lunch here. Okay, I got you. So we'll we'll go with Julianne first because uh, she just popped in. Then we'll get you and and with you, Keith. So I'll ask you to unmute there, Julianne. Hi, I'm Julianne. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Um, that was an awful lot of information on Pank on Hank Pankhurst and everything. Um, how come it's sort of like, not not sort of like, how come it hasn't been so widely available? How come you've done all the research? Because I mean, clearly he was a very important person. And what you've said today is absolutely amazing. Well, he got, as I said earlier, he got dropped out of the story because he drank again. It was, you know, given this guy the kind of prominence he deserves in the story, was was it was just the wrong message to be sending. You know, if you if they if they make him some sort of iconic co-founder, anybody anybody who was looking to shoot down AA or to go back out for a drink because this is a bogus organization could say, well, <laughs> gee, there's that that co-founder of yours. He drank nine months later. How how so? How's that working for you, Hank? You know. That sort of thing. So I, I think I think it was just just a matter. It was an embarrassment. It was an embarrassment. His his prominence in the story was an embarrassment if it got told that way. So it got got dropped out. But yes, and I well I can understand that. But also, I mean, like me, you know, I I, I didn't stay sober when I first came into AA. It took me ten years. It took me 10 years. Well, you know, I think we ought to um, actually. Yeah, we have one more. I'm going to thank you, Julie, Julianne, and <laughs> uh, just uh, pass on because Bill uh, is. Hey, all right, no, that's fine. I understand you're busy. Okay, no, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, we, we want to we want to honor um, Bill's time here. He gave us a couple hours of his time. So I just want to make sure we uh, honor that. Thank you. Yep, that's, thank you, Bridget. And uh, so, Keith, you're the last question of the day here. Very, very quick. Uh, Good. It sounds an amazing man. You must have got inside his head a bit, Bill uh, Hank's head a bit, maybe understand the man a bit. It is just mind-blowingly sad, you know, that he slipped. I never got so bright again. It's so sad. And I'm sure you can't. It's, it's baffling. It's baffling. I am... Um, I haven't had a drink for 30 years. And one of the one of the things I put that down to is that I listened to the people who slipped. I was just so horrified by the stories of the older guys who I heard coming back into meetings who had slipped. And they're just another one. That's a quintessential one of a man who deserved to get sobriety. And, and it's just awful that he didn't. And for me, that's just an amazing lesson for me. I have the choice to drink again, but I am not. I just don't want to drink today. And it's because of that sort of thing. It's so sad. I'm just wondering, do you feel the sadness for the man? Well, yeah, of course I do. Most especially for for the fact that I mean, the fact that he that he drank and he had a miserable last 15 years of his life for one thing. But 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 and being forgotten is just just not fair. You know, it's just I mean, who says it was fair? Anything's supposed to be fair, but but it, it's just yeah, it's just it's just an amazing, you know. That whole thing is, it's, it's a mystery. It's just a mystery. I mean, 
you could say I listen to people who had slips and tried not to do that stuff, but it's a mystery why people get sober. It's a mystery how people get get slips. I just, you know, I I don't I don't have any any supernatural forces in my life at all. But my world is filled with mystery. There's mystery everywhere. I just don't pull in some supernatural explanation for that mystery. But I acknowledge the mysteries, you know. Sunlight's a mystery, for God's sake. As far as I'm concerned, I can't figure out what the hell it is and how it works and what energy is. But there it is, you know, and it's all working. It's the same thing with alcoholism, I think. You know, my wife always says, you know, every alcoholic's different, which is why they couldn't come up with a soundbite to, to describe an alcoholic. You know, you just can't do that. Everybody's drinking and everybody's everybody's. Um, drunk story is different and their alcoholism is different. And I think, I think that's true of recovery. I think it's true of slips. It's all a mystery. I'm just, I'm happy. I'm happy. I've been in a drink in 41 plus years. It's a beautiful, I've had a great life. I would, I'd be a dead man for sure by this time otherwise. So, so, okay. We good. Thank, yes. Thank you very much, Bill, for all your work, for the book. Uh, thank for you. With us, taking a long time. And yeah, 